So welcome to Awaken. My name is Jordan. Um, I'm a small group leader, home group leader here, I'm sorry, home group leader here, and I have the privilege of sharing with you tonight out of God's Word. We're uh, wrapping up our series in Exodus, um, where we've been looking, uh, kind of taking bits and pieces of it, looking at the character of God, looking at uh, His justice and His redemption as it played out with the Israelites in Egypt, and then... uh, we're looking at ways that we can engage with God's mission um, of redemption. So we're going to jump right into uh, Scripture. It's kind of like one of those cutoff episodes where the 10th plague has just happened, and then it says to be continued. Well, we're going we're gonna to pick up on the next episode immediately. So it's the middle of the night, uh, Passover night in Egypt. The angel of death has just visited in all the firstborn Uh, males and livestock of Egypt have all been killed as part of the judgment of God against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. So this is in Exodus 12 that we'll we'll start, and then we'll we'll jump into 13 and 14 here in a second. uh, Verse 30. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go and worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said, and go, and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold for, and, and for clothing. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, and there were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. And the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked into loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare the food for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. So just a couple of quick observations here. Uh, the plagues have happened. God has demonstrated his power, and he has in, in basically imposed his will on Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and then Pharaoh says, go, finally, get out. And God is moving his people out of the darkness of bondage into the light of his presence in relationship with him. And this is, you hear the, over, over, uh, the refrain over and over again where God says to his people, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Here are some three obser- quick observations about the redemption we see here. The first is that God has perfect timing in his redemption. You think about the all the generations from uh, Isaac and then Jacob and Joseph and then the, the 12 tribes all the way up to this point. There have been multiple generations where people have died in slavery. And Moses himself has, was, was born into, into slavery. That's all they ever knew. And at this point, Moses is 80 years old. And throughout this time, there has been, uh, God has been waiting and waiting and waiting, and finally he raises Moses up. He says, this is the time. This is what we're going to do. It's now. I know what I'm doing. This is when I'm going to accomplish my purposes. 
In the same way, when Christ died for us, Romans says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God's redemption is perfect in its timing. Second observation here is that God is 100% holistic in his redemption. When we are redeemed, we are 100% redeemed. It's not just when we come to church, that time is redeemed. It's not just our work that's redeemed. It's not just our speech that's redeemed or the way that we treat our bodies that's redeemed. We are 100% redeemed. Why do I say that? During the 10 plagues, Pharaoh continually refuses and then begins to bargain with Moses. Okay, take the men and go. Or just you and your leaders go. Or just you and the children, but leave the livestock. The reality is here is that God wanted to have 100% redemption of the people of Israel. Everything they owned, their livestock, the women, the children, everyone all at once. It's interesting that the livestock come up. What's, what's important about those? Well, at that time, the livestock represented their ability to offer sacrifice. He was redeeming their ability to go and worship him. So when God comes to redeem you, he redeems everything about you. Kit and caboodle. The third observation is that God, whatever God redeems, he also extravagantly blesses. You see that the Israelites... Uh, are plundering the Egyptians. The Egyptians are saying, go, go, take our stuff, get out. And so they are enriched beyond anything they had up to this point, and they're carrying it with them, the, the gold and the jewels and the scarves. And, and that's just a, a, a byproduct of God's redemption. Whatever he redeems, he also blesses. So, after they have left, uh, and so let me, let me correct myself. They actually haven't left Egypt. They're still in Egypt um, from a geographical standpoint. They're still with well within their borders. Uh, this place called Succoth is just a few hundred miles to the east of where they would have stayed in the city of Ramses that they built for the Pharaoh. Um, well, let's go ahead and pick it up. They're going to take a detour here. God has promised them to go, into the, uh, to go into the promised land, into Canaan, and then immediately, God says, no, we're going to take a detour. This is not a good idea. Uh, let's find out why. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for, my, for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. So uh, if you're familiar with the geography of this part of the world, there is actually a very short, very simple kind of alley-oop right around the edge of the Mediterranean Sea that uh, the Israelites could take. It was a well-known, uh, very short distance in those, in those times. It was, it was a road. It was well-traveled. It was known. But God led them in another direction. The question is, why does he do this? So at a recent birthday uh, that I had with my family, we went to a go-kart 
place on Elm Creek Road. I, the name is escaping me. It doesn't matter. But basically, they have like the kiddie go-karts were the ones that go like maybe like two miles an hour and the kids kind of ride around them. And then you go into like the junior section and then the adult section. How many of you guys have been there and know what I'm talking about? Okay. So these things are, f- they, they're fast. Awesome. They're awesome. Yes. There's, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm coming to you. <laughs> so, so these go-karts are like turbocharged. We're, we're talking like 40, 50 miles an hour around these turns. It's, and it is. It's like an adult toy. So we go for the, for the party, and then our little girls um, and the nephews, and, and they all kind of play on it. But, but Zoe's a little bit too big for that. So we're like, okay, Zoe, we're going to let you go on the junior, the junior go-karts, which it's a bad idea. Again, we're getting there. <laughs> so... These things are fast, um, maybe 30, 35 miles an hour, but they're hairpin turns. And Zoe has uh, operated a powered vehicle exactly zero times. So she has no idea how to control this thing. And I'm trying to walk back and forth where I explain, okay, look, when you're coming into a curve, you need to let off the gas, put on the brake, you need to slow down to be able to make the curve. If you don't, you're going to go wide, you're going to lose control and all that fun. So we put her on this go-kart. And then uh, she's, she's at this point, she's nine, and we probably have 13, 14, 15, probably 16-year-olds that are driving with her uh, who have some concept of how this works. Uh, we put her out there, and she zooms off, and we're going like, oh, no. So all these other cars start zipping by, zip, 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 and we're going to go, where's Zoe? <laughs> they can go around again, and finally, one of the people that are, are, are uh, working this thing, they go and they get her, and it turns out... Um, and maybe some of my family actually saw this, she hit a wall at high speed. She hit the wall so hard that the windshield of her, of her helmet like popped out. <laughs> uh, and she hit the wall, and, and so she's having to be guided back in, and uh, she finally comes back in, and she's dazed. She's a little hurt. Um, she's probably a little bit scared, shook up. Her first words to me, I said, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> I'm never doing that again. Um, And the fact of the matter is, is that the go-kart was too much for her at that time. She didn't know how to operate it. She didn't know anything about the physical forces and and how to to work with those. She didn't know how to hang in there. And so it was just all overwhelming. And so the end end result was, I'm never going to do it again. I'm done. I quit. That is exactly what God is afraid the Israelites are going to do if they go to Canaan. If they go to Canaan, they're going to face walled cities. They're going to face entrenched armies. They're going to face giants. And he says, if there's any type of major conflict, any type of war, any type of obstacle they come up that's too big for them, it's too early. Their faith is, 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 too, is too small. It's, they're too new at this. So we're going to go in a different direction, and we're going to do something else. But our faith matters to God. Our maturity matters to God. He is most honored when we trust him with absolute confidence. He wants us to walk without fear in every circumstance because, he know, because we know that he's always with us and he's always for us and he will never leave us. So because he loves us and because he loves the Israelite, he's going to help us grow that faith. So here is what God is going to do. He's going to create a divine setup And he's going to do two things through this setup. He's going to create a trust exercise for the Israelites where they're going to learn how to trust him. And secondly, he's going to set a trap for the Egyptians 
and he's going to lay out his judgment on them. So there's some debate where this actual location, the, the, the Red Sea crossing, actually occurred. Um, but that's not, I'm not going to address any of that right now. But know that this, this specific geographic arrangement that is being described here constitutes a very big risk for the Israelites. It's not a strategically sound location. In fact, it's a very poor place to, leave, to lead potentially a million and a half, two million people on foot. It's a bad idea because what you end up having is a, a, a tower, a rugged rock face, and then a sea that will box you in. And the only way that you can get out of it is back the way you came across packed desert sand, just a long expanse of it. There's nowhere to run. It's like a blind alley. And in his wisdom and, and for his purposes, God asked the Israelites to go into this blind alley. And he will do the same thing for us so that he can grow our faith. We might walk into it. It may find us. It may be as a consequence of our decision-making process, or maybe we were just born into it. God is going to lead us into an awkward circumstance and hard place, places of risk and discomfort and potentially real danger with no guarantees, and he's going to ask us to trust him. Why does he do this? Why does he do this? Take a look at verse 4. This is important because God's glory is at stake. He says, I'm going to gain glory through Pharaoh and his army and that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. The Egyptians are watching. The world is watching what God is going to do with his people. So, Many of you are examples of obedience in the face of risk. You know, I, I would think about all the people at Awaken and, and, and the numerous ways that this can kind of play out and just thought of a few. And you know, think of the college group on the Oval proclaiming Christ in a, in a place where uh, the environment and kind of the spirit of the age would say, you know what, that's hateful. When they're, when they're speaking the truth in love and, and they could be labeled as, as haters. Um, I think of the Krauses and the Schoenfelds and the Marshalls who have stepped into deep poverty and the effects of generational fatherlessness, who've taken risks. I think of Lauren Osborne and Sarah Hertzler who, have, who left the country to go to Georgia and to learn how to speak Arabic so they could come back and minister to the Muslims that are next door. I think about the individuals in my home group who have faithfully walked in the broken places in their own lives in the lives of their families, where they've for years hoped and prayed and waited for God to move in impossible ways. They've stepped in for caring for family members with severe mental and physical disabilities. Others have experienced shocking loss only to turn around and say, you know what, my hope still remains. My hope still remains. And still under others have been wounded by their brothers and sisters in Christ. But instead of pointing the finger and being bitter, they have instead pointed to the mercy and grace of God that was lavished on them, refusing to shrink back from community, even when community hurts. And there are many, many more. Through your lives, God is making his case to the world because you are following his leading in the hard places of life. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. 
Let perseverance finish its work in you that you may be made mature and complete, not lacking anything. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So moving on now, let's talk about the trap. When word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. What have we done letting all those Israelites' slaves get away, they asked. And so Pharaoh harnessed his chariot and called up his troops. He took with him 600 of Egypt's best chariots along with the rest of the chariots of Egypt, each with its own commander. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so he chased after the people of Israel and who had left with fists raised in defiance. The Egyptians chased after them with all the forces in Pharaoh's army and all his horses, his chariots, his charioteers, and his troops. And the Egyptians caught up with the people of Israel as they were camped beside the shore near where? Pihahirath, across from Baal Zephon. So Pharaoh now fully embraces his role as an enemy of the people of God. He intends to re-enslave or to kill them all. His military advisors are in a pretty vengeful mood because they've lost fathers, brothers, sons. They've all died, and it's because of the Israelites. And the image of the slaves walking free with fists raised in defiance would have been intolerable to them. So Egypt had suffered extreme loss, but there was one thing that was still intact, and that was their ability to strike out at their enemies through their military. And the Egyptian military was the military of the time. It was a technological marvel, the chariot. It was fast, it was light, it was highly mobile. It was manned by two archers and a driver. It was nigh untouchable by anyone on foot. It would have been the equivalent of an M1 Abrams tank in today's nomenclature. So Pharaoh deploys his lightning war machine and sends it hurtling down that same packed desert blind alley after the Israelites, cutting off any means of perceived escape. And the Israelites were on foot, are slow, have few fighting men, have women and children and old people, and likely an assortment of cows, goats, and maybe the odd chicken. It's not. They're effectively defenseless, unless they want to start throwing chickens. And I don't know that that's worked ever before. I don't know where I'm going down this path, but Monty Python is coming to my mind. And they're chicken, and it's, anyway. <laughs> Zero back in. <laughs> so our enemy, who is our enemy? Come on. Who's our enemy? Satan. He who shall not be named. Satan. Satan's our enemy. Satan hates nothing more than a man or woman who was formerly a slave, locked in bondage, who is now free, who is now fully devoted to Christ, laying their lives on the line because they trust him. He hates that more than anything else because it's a threat to him and his kingdom. It's a reminder that he's lost and that his final, his final crushing is in the future. He hates it. When we are redeemed, we become a direct threat to Satan and his dominion over the world because we have the spirit of the living God in us. Once you are in Christ, you become eternally untouchable in every way that matters because you belong to God. You can't be taken from his hand, but Satan can use sin in one of two ways to take you out of the equation. The first is if you do not resist sin, 
and cling to Jesus and the freedom that he has won from, for you, Satan can attempt to re-enslave you with sin. He can lead you back into slavery and put chains on you if you refuse to resist sin. He will accuse you. He will lie to you. He will bury you in guilt and shame and convince you that you haven't actually been made free or that you aren't a full heir to Christ or that Jesus really isn't the answer for you, that it's hopeless. He will attempt to numb you and make you apathetic and put you to sleep if you don't resist sin. The second way he can use sin to mess with you is that he can use his destructive nature to wound you and others around you or even destroy you, to end your life. You must resist. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And like Cain was warned, he said, sin crouches at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. 1 Peter 5.8 says this, Be alert and sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, after you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you firm and steadfast. I suspect that many of us probably bear the painful scars of past failures, and we're going to bear them until Jesus comes and makes all things new. But praise God, Jesus has scars of his own. Scars he bears for us. He has come to bring us life abundantly. And his true argument to Satan's false one is that we do belong to Jesus. And our true home is not in Egypt, it's in the New Jerusalem. And in Jesus, we will experience total victory over both sin and death. All right. Let's move on in the uh, narrative. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and where there were the Egyptians marching after them, and they were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there was no more graves in Egypt? that you brought us into the desert to die. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you, in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. All right, so um, we can give them the benefit of the doubt. It was really easy to look at the Israelites and kind of judge them and say, oh, well, they're out of their minds. They just went cray-cray because clearly that's, they, they got to know what's going to happen next. They had no clue what was going to happen next. They thought they were going to die. Their faith is overwhelmed by their fear. And a common response of our sinful nature when we are in trial is fear. Fear is our flesh's argument against faith. And fear is a big fat liar. It, it distorts reality. It changes the way we see everything. If you're afraid, you can't think straight. They've actually done studies on this too. I, I teach it in the uh, customer service for the, my job. If you've got an emotional hijack, there's fear going on or someone gets angry or upset or whatever. Like, there's like a 20-minute period where you are out of your mind. You just need to go take a walk. Likewise, our anxieties can become overwhelming when we lose, we lose all sense of control. At the very basic level, fear, anxiety, 
even unbelief, have roots at a level of either ignorance or a lack of faith or unbelief. What does that mean? That is to say, we don't yet fully understand who God is. We don't yet fully understand who God is for us. Tests of faith prompt those kinds of questions into our hearts. Does God really love me? Is he really working for my good? Is Jesus really better? Why is this so hard? The first question in verse 11 is actually pretty telling uh, about the graves because Egypt specialized in graves. Like, they were desert. Like, the graves were their, their shtick. Like, graves, go to Egypt. They got some really big ones. They're really pretty. They're made of marble and gold. And their religion revolved around death. Their cities and their monuments and their tombs celebrated death. When a pharaoh died, a portion of the court was slaughtered to serve him in death. You getting the, 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 the gist here? So it is with sin. Sin leads only to death. But not so with Christ. He empowers us to live by faith. And since we've been given a new life, we must leave the old one behind. We must abandon the lies that feed into our fears and exchange them for the truth that's in God's word. Tests of faith are relationship milestones for us in our walk with God because not only does it allow us to know him, but it allows us to experience the truth of who he is in scripture in real time. All right. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord that will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his armor, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh. His char- um, I put it twice. I was so excited to read it. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. By the way, just as an aside, when he says the angel of God, the messenger of the Lord, these are most likely Christophanies. We're talking about Christ pre-incarnate Christ who is leading them and defending them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them. And all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let us get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand 
over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back into place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that followed the Israelites was gone. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Okay, that's a lot. I think there are three lessons and three responses we need to look at. The first lesson that we need to learn about is is what God wants us to know about his presence. God's presence up to this point had been manifested in front of them. It was leading them, a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. God was there with them in a visible way, in a palpable way, and it was comforting. But now it does something strange. It moves behind them and is no longer leading them. This is the first time they had seen that. It had never been done before. God, what are you doing? Where are you? Why are you back there? It, didn't, it was protecting the uh, Israelites. It didn't allow the Egyptians to come anywhere close to striking distance. But the step-by-step guidance was gone. And when we can't tell ourselves when the presence of God is, that's disconcerting. Maybe we're used to experiencing presence in a particular way through worship or prayer or work. Uh, or creation, and then suddenly God can seem far away in those things. What do we do then? What do we do when that happens in the middle of a trial? It's even more pronounced. God, have you left me? <laughs> are, 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 am, I, am I on my own? This is important for us to learn about God's presence. Just because we're not able to sense God's presence or closeness in trial, It's only a temporary inability to see what he is doing. He's still doing it. He's still there. Our perception of the presence of God is never a good measure of whether or not God is close to us. Even in the dark parts of our lives, God is always illuminating our path. uh, In the middle of the night, you say that the, the cloud turns to flame And the flame is going to be what's going to stay there in that wall throughout the whole night and cast light down the entire path that they're walking down uh, in the middle of the sea. This is what I love about God's word. Even when I can't tell that God is near, sometimes he uses it to excite me when I I dive into his word. And, And David says the same thing, that God... How sweet your words taste to me. They're sweeter than honey. Your commandments give me understanding. No wonder I hate every false way of life. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. I promised it once and I'll promise it again. I will obey your righteous regulations. So when you don't know that God, God doesn't feel near, press into his word, continue to pursue him. He will reveal himself. Second thing is when you don't feel his presence, sometimes it's also helpful to just go ahead and look back. Look back to the ways that God has been kind to you, that God has supported you. 
in the past that he's demonstrated his character to you, that he's sustained you with love and mercy, how he's provided for you, how he's never failed you or left you alone. Sometimes we can only see those things in hindsight. Sometimes when we're going through the trial, we don't know where God is, and then we look back and we're like, oh God, you were there. You were there the whole time. Even through sorrow and pain, he has given us in the past lasting joy. Remember that he has always and only been good to you. When you don't feel his presence, he's there. Seek after him. Pursue his will for your life that's already laid out in his word. When he seems far, all he's doing is asking for us to trust what he has already revealed to us. Trust him. Trust in the power of his promises. Even when we can't tell what he's doing. He's always near. He's always attentive to us. He always knows what we truly need. He's always working on our behalf. And sometimes that means it's time to grow your faith. Press in. One last thing, we'll move on here. But notice that the light of God's presence is actually darkness to the Egyptians. It's confusing to them. They don't, they don't know where to go. They don't know how to get through. They don't understand the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil. It is hidden only from the people who are perishing. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. and They don't understand his message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. Second lesson. God wants us to understand his power. God's power is deliverance for his people. He is mighty to save. Stop for a moment and visualize the situation. This is midnight. It's the middle of the night in a desert darkness, and waves are breaking on the shore. God asked Moses to do one simple act of faith and raise his hand and his staff over the sea. And when he does it, God moves through him powerfully, supernaturally, on behalf of his people. And he makes a way where there was no way before. God loves to demonstrate the power that he has through the weakness of the people who belong to him. He allows us to be confronted by our finite energy and wisdom time and time again because he wants us to be able to see that the victory is his. And he wants us to get excited about that. He's delivering his people here, remember, so that they may live and worship him. If you've never known what it means to feel small, go stand on the edge of the ocean and just... How many of you guys have ever had a chance to do that? Stand on the edge of the ocean and go, oh. The service hymn of the Royal Navy, it's Eternal Father, Strong to Save. It's actually been adopted by the U.S. Navy. Its first verse is, is like this. Eternal Father, strong to save, whose arm hath bound the restless wave, who biddest the mighty ocean deep and its own appointed limits keep. Oh, hear us when we cry to thee for those in peril on the sea. We may be at mercy of the sea, but the sea answers to God. When we begin to recognize and experience God's power flowing through us and manifesting around us, we begin to understand just very much how he, he is God and we're not. 
God also demonstrates his power in victory over his enemies. God has spared Pharaoh and his army until, only until now so that he can fulfill his purposes to show my power and spread my fame throughout the earth. And when the Egyptian army saw it coming, they're like, oh no. We see the God of Israel. He's fighting for them and against us. We're undone. And so God pours out his justice and his judgment on the Egyptians. And Pharaoh, who like Satan, sought to put himself on a throne and be subject to nothing and no one, not God, not even his creator, God judged Pharaoh too. If you're not in Christ tonight, if you don't know him, if you haven't put your faith in him, if, if you don't call him Lord, don't delay in acknowledging God who, and who he is. Don't delay in saying, God, I actually exist for you, not the other way around. Come and take over my life. I offer everything I am for everything that you are. If you refuse, please know that there is a time, a date coming. It's not an infinite number of chances, but there's a time and date coming when it'll be too late. And you will have indicated to God that you would rather take your chances on your own merit and you will be judged. And the full weight of it will come down on you and crush you and you will drown forever. Don't wait. Respond to the way out that Jesus offers to you today. Last point, and this is the one I think is the most cool, most, most relevant to me, I should say. And that is, is that God wants to understand his preeminence. Do you remember what God told the Israelites when he said to park on the beach? He said, I will be honored. The Egyptians are going to know who I am. That's a profound statement. They will know that I am the Lord. What is he saying? He's saying that I'm preeminent. I am before all things. God's desire is to be first, not only in reality, because he is, he is in reality. Like there's, No one's going to argue that. He wants to be first in the hearts of his people. You see, we can experience his power, we can see his presence, but, but he wants his glory to be known, and he wants it to be known through all the nations. He wants Egypt to know that he's God. You think about this, that therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and earth and in under earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God says, I am preeminent. You are my people. You belong to me. Therefore, in my knowledge, in my wisdom, in my purpose and my plan, I am going to sacrifice your comfort, your ego, maybe even your life, so that when I do, the eyes of the world will be on you and they will see how you respond. They will know that I'm the Lord. God says, I don't exist for you, you exist for me. If I can bring glory to my name and reveal others to others who I am by putting you in a difficult situation, in a heartbreaking situation, it's uncertain. If I can accomplish my purposes that are far beyond your comfort, I am the Lord. This is hard stuff. 
This is because it, it forces us to go in a radical shift in our thinking that we must learn as we mature in Christ. Trial encourages this paradigm shift. When we're born, uh, self is preeminent. We're born, everyone loves us, everyone serves us. Mommy and daddy are, are planets orbiting the sun of self. Uh, and then when we grow up, everything else in our lives we like to order in such a way. Work, career, marriage, uh, power, success, money, sex. Everything is meant to serve us at the center of the solar system. And God says, no. And go sit in time out until you figure that out. My wife, by the way, um, bought a timeout chair. It uh, has a little list on the thing. It, it was great. We're like, okay, we're going to stick them in this chair. They're going to learn. They're going to have that discomfort. And they go, okay, okay, yes. I love mommy and daddy. They love me. I need to obey. And all that. It didn't work at all. They're like, let me sit in that timeout chair. <laughs> it's awesome. Look at the new thing. And we're like, ah, it's not it's supposed to work. We read the instructions. Like, is this supposed to happen? It didn't work. God puts us in time out that we might say, God, I exist for you. Charles Spurgeon says this, it is a good thing for us to be afflicted, for thus we learn patience and we attain to assurance. Shall the champion who is bidden to go to the front of the battle think that he is punished thereby? No, verily, my brethren, whom the Lord loveth, he sits at the heat of conflict that he may earn the rarest honors. Great suffering and heavy labor are often rewards of faithfulness. If we are sent for a test of faith, for, it is for the excitement of desire and for the increase in sympathy of others who walk in darkness. So that means if I never have fulfillment in my job, if the cancer never goes away, if that relationship never gets better, if my spouse never makes me happy, if that child never responds, if my finances are always in disarray, if my work never seems to amount to anything, if I always experience rejection and my dreams never come true, trouble grips me, grips you, grips us. God says, little child, I love you, but it's not about you. I am the Lord. Our paradigm of self must fall so that his heart, his desires, his love, his power, his glory, his majesty, his victory, his mission becomes ours. That's how this works itself out. So that Jesus Christ may become preeminent in us so that through us he might become preeminent in the world. So, last point. Uh, Kimball and Christine, you guys can come up. How are we to engage in God's mission? First, we need to stand firm. You need to resist sin. You strive after maturity in faith, the truth of God, who he is, and then the assurance of heaven. That's what comes when we become mature. We understand who God is, and we understand where we're going. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. That's in Isaiah. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened by a yoke of slavery. Go, don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back there. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. The first thing is resist sin. Stand firm in what you know about who God is and what he's done for you. Second is be still. 
Some translations, I, I think this is even better, it's glorious to me. My wife and I went on a vacation. We just enjoyed the fact that there was no sound anywhere. Is be still. Some translations read, be silent. Shut up. Pay attention. Look. Listen. Be still. Wait on God to show up. Don't try to be him. In that place of trial, watch intently for the salvation that he's going to bring to you. Here's an important point. That salvation may be a long way coming. You may not see deliverance out of that trial until heaven. But watch and wait for it. Last thing is move forward. The command that uh, God gives to Moses, hey, get the people moving. I mean, they can, be, they can stand firm, they can be still. Now it's time to move. It's time to move. There's a time to pray. There's a time to plan. There's a time to think about. And then there's a time to go. Faith without action is dead. And uh, we can... We've got some amazing things going on in Awaken right now where people are going to the far corners of the earth on behalf of Jesus, for him, for others, for the lost. Sometimes we can think that that's like super Christianity. But every one of you has an opportunity to do that with your next door neighbor, with your coworker, with your classmate. To go. Don't just pray. Go. Open your mouth. Bake the cookies. Open the Bible and ask the question. Finally, move forward. Look for a way through the trial. The truth is, is that nothing is impossible for God. The number of times that we self-limit just because of our own lack of creativity, where we look at a situation and we say, well, that won't work, that won't work, that won't. You don't know that. You don't know that. There's a place for wisdom, but then there's a place for obedience and trust in God. And he's inviting you there. And the great part is, is all authority has been given to him. He has it all. He says, go. God's greater than anything that we face, and he's fighting on our behalf. All right, the last thing, I'll go ahead and read this, and then we'll worship. 2 Corinthians 4. It's a little bit of a paraphrase, but you see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let there be light in darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts so that we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great pleasure. This makes it clear that the great power is from God and not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed. We are not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but we're never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under the constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. But as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more 
glory. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day, for our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them all and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen, for the things we will see now will soon be gone, and the things we cannot see will last forever.